Well, good morning, Patricia Ilhan, and welcome to season two of Women in Property and Business. With a career starting at IBM, how did you find working for a corporation as large as Telstra, and how did this influence your business acumen? Well, I joined IBM straight out of university after finishing my degree. And IBM has an amazing course in the first 12 months. It's like a, you're not allowed to speak to a real life customer, it's just one year of training, as if you were still at university, but you're getting paid. So IBM had the greatest influence on my business acumen. I then took that business acumen with me to Telstra and Telstra were quite behind academically and business-wise compared to IBM. So everything I, implement, I implemented at IBM at Telstra was quite kind of new for them. A lot of people left IBM when it was having difficulty and moved across to Telstra and brought with them all the skills they had learned at IBM. Interesting to look back, I would imagine, reflecting of Telstra then to Telstra now. Absolutely. I was very lucky when I joined Telstra, it was the cash cow. Mobiles was the cash cow of the business. They had just entered a competitive market, which they were not comfortable in, and they needed skilled people who understand, understood how to compete in a market with Optus and Vodafone, which they had never experienced before. And of course, working for IBM, it was always the most expensive option. We were used to competition, so we were taught to sell value add and they're the skills that Telstra needed that they didn't have um, when they became they entered a competitive market. I, I dare to ask, what what did a mobile phone look like back then? Was it the old brick? I think yes, that was it my was. first one. Yeah, it was NEC and Motorola, the big fat bricks. Yeah, and then it shrunk down to the flip phone, which is the Motorola flip phone. And then, of course, it's progressed at an alarming rate since then. As you know, now it's one of the most important devices that we're all dependent on. I know, it's actually quite frightening, but I remember going from that big Motorola brick to the Nokia, the, the flip that was about tiny, and yes. you could never find it. Or no, once you found right. it, you couldn't answer it. And if you, had, you, if you had long nails, you couldn't press the buttons because it was so small. Absolutely. Um, Patricia, I note that from an early age, you were already financially independent. Was that something instilled in you from a young age? Yes, it was. So both my parents came from Europe. My father came here with literally the clothes on his back from Sicily, and my mother came from Vienna. And despite the fact that they were neighbouring countries, they did meet in Melbourne and got married here. And so I'm the eldest of three, and we were born here. So there was never enough money to go around. Um, you know, my memory of childhood is just listening to mum and dad argue just to make, make ends meet. And so we were taught that we all needed to be financially independent. And the my parents' view was the best way to reach financial independence, especially given that we were women, was through education. So my sisters and I were kind of forced to go to university, even though I reflect and think it's the best thing I ever did, because that got me into IBM and to all the other senior positions that I held. And so we were raised to be financially independent because my parents weren't when they came to Australia. My mother married very young. She never had any assets of her own. So there's always a risk associated with that for women, isn't there? Absolutely. And it's a, certainly a great trait to have learned at an early age. Yes. Um, yes. Patricia, can you tell us a little bit about meeting John for the first time way back when? <clears throat> so when I joined Halstra, I was an account manager 
and I was given a portfolio of 30 clients, of which Crazy John's was one of them. And I'll never forget the previous rep handing the manila file to me saying, oh, he's never going to amount to anything. And I thought, great, I'm paid on commission. This is just typical. Um, and, in fact, that rep was completely wrong. From the first moment I met him, I realised he was a broady boy, grew up on the streets, and he's brought all of those skills with him into business. He used to say that it was easier growing up on the streets of Broadmeadows than it is running a business. So um, really? he was very charming and suave and he had to talk his way out of things when he was a kid. There were gang fights. <clears throat> there was a lot of violence in Broadmeadows and he brought with him all of those skills to the business. And I think that's what separated him from all the other businessmen who were taught formally at university. He had no formal education. So everything, the way he behaved, the way he ran his business was very much like a family. So he established a culture that, you know, you wouldn't go to someone's house and put your feet up on a coffee table. Well, why would you do it here? This is, we're all part of a family. And he instilled that culture in young boys and he groomed them to be very successful businessmen in their own right. And I think what I love, Crazy John's, it was such a logo that was identifiable. Yes. Which is, I think as a brand was fabulous. Yeah, it was. And again. And I think he paid a signwriter $20 to come up with that little mascot <laughs> with the tongue hanging really? out. Yeah. Oh, so funny. Yeah. So he was quite the retail magnate. Now 20 years since he established his first mobile phone shop, what are the major changes you've shown, you've noticed in retail during those 30 years? Oh, yeah, retail's come such a long way since then. I think it's more of a commodity item now, especially with online shopping available. When John first opened his stores, he just did what his competitors were doing anyway. He just did it better. So he would come yeah. to your home to program your phone. He would drive out to wherever the supplier was to pick up the phones, then drive to you. So the level of customer service was very high. And at that time, nobody mm. was doing customer service that well. <clears throat> so then that set him apart from all the competitors immediately. It was very personal. So you'd go in there and if it took a while to buy a phone, he'd go next door to the cafe and get you a latte, bring it into the shop while you were deciding which phone you were going to buy. Um, and I don't think that exists in retail anymore. I don't find that it's not as such a pleasurable experience as he made it 30 years ago. And realistically, it is still, you know, everything is about service and making your customer feel special. That's so right. he obviously knew what he was doing back then. He did that very well. It was oh. almost like you were a guest in his home every time he came into one of his shops. And he predicted, he used to say things like, you wait one day, we're just going to touch our phones and our credit cards are going to be on it. And everyone would say, oh, that's ridiculous, you know, that's just not going to happen. And he'd say, mark my words, that's going to happen one day, and here we are, and that's exactly how we live our life now. Wow, well, I'm still quite a dinosaur. I've got an Apple Watch, Apple Pay, and I still pull out my credit card to pay for anything, so oh, I really haven't got with the program. Oh, no, I've got but my card. quite extraordinary. Yeah, and I use my phone. Yeah, so yeah. I just find, especially so now with the COVID situation, I think everyone prefers a contactless um, sale and so it's just as easy to tap the phone and, and everyone seems to be quite happy with that. 
Sure do. Um, Patricia, you were left a single mother at a young age raising four children. How important was it for you that they were all well-adjusted, educated and financially independent? Absolutely critical to how I define raising happy children. I've got three girls and a boy and I've instilled in them the same principles that my parents instilled in me. Even though my family is financially better off than my parents were when I was growing up, I've taught the children to not rely on that money, that they must be financially independent in their own right. And if any extra money comes later in life, that's just a bonus. But I expect them to be able to put food on the table for their children if the marriage breaks down. They should be in a position where they can go back to work immediately because their skills are still valued and they need to not rely on a man um, to pay bills and to run a household. And generally speaking, women do manage the finances in a house. So without realising it, women are very good at doing that anyway. So I think Absolutely. it's very important. Yeah. I want all my children, especially the girls, to be financially independent, but obviously the boy too. And I have instilled that into them from very early on. And they've all done that. You know, one's in London and she's just done a master's in law. She works for the Law Commission in London. The other one's doing third year at Melbourne Uni. Uh, one's just finished her degree in health science and she's about to start her master's. And she's currently working at the Murdoch Children's Institute, Research Institute. And my son's in year nine. So he's got a little bit to go. Right. But he's grown up with his three older sisters being quite high achievers. So that sets the path without me even having to say much because he knows the family that he's come from. He, knows, he will expect his wife, I imagine, to be educated just like his sisters are. And then that's good because then you find a partner and equal. You're not looking at the traditional roles of male and female. You're looking at for a partnership. And I think that's the future of relationships moving forward. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm often surprised when I come across some women that don't know how to do online banking. Yes. Their husband does it for them. You think yeah. you've got, it is vital. Absolutely, Absolutely. vital. Um, and if the marriage breaks down later on, then that's when the real problems start if they don't have those skills in their skill set. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, in terms of changes, did you ever imagine that the mobile phone technology would actually be where it is today? What do you think John would have said about it? Well, like I said, he did predict some of the things. So for someone who was married to someone who <clears throat> that was his life, he used to make predictions about it all the time. So now that we're at that point, I'm not probably as surprised as other people would be because they were conversations that we'd had at home 30 years ago. We just kind of shrugged them off and thought, well, you know, who, who really knows where the industry is going? But I'm very pleased that it's, it is where it is today. I'd be lost without my mobile phone. So it's more than just a phone now. It's a, a business tool and it's a device that it's like an appendage on our body, isn't it? We stress out if, we, if it's not with us all the time. Um, and I suppose to some extent it's controlling our life. But by the same token, offers yep. so many benefits for us. I know. I'm definitely one of those addicted to my phone. And if I can't find my phone, I get panicked. I really... And yes. you're right, it is our life from everything. And I've been... Because my 
Technology is not brilliant. If anything starts to do something that I don't understand, my first thing is, I don't know, control, alt, delete, or push <laughs> a button here, push a yeah. button there. So, exactly. yes. Exactly. Um, Patricia, I know you've got a large property portfolio. What do you look for when you're looking for a property? So I can make a decision on a property without seeing the property, just if it works on paper. So if it gives me a return, if the, the lease payments outweigh the mortgage and it runs itself and is completely self-sustainable, then it's a goer. And my financial advisors will always say, I think we should take a drive and just have a look at it. And I'd say, well, what for? If it works on paper and if it's giving me the return that I desire, I don't physically need to see it. It doesn't really, that's not going to make a decision. All I care about is that I'm getting a return. Um, and so that that's how I look at it. Choosing a property for quality of life can be a bit different. Um, I think all women should purchase property in their 20s, irrespective of whether or not they have a partner. By the time they get to their mid-30s, they're having children, and I think it's too late. I bought my first property at 21, sold that and bought my next property at 24, and even when I was married, I just rented it out. So it paid itself off in the background. I had the children, um, and it was much later on in life that I sold it. And I think it's very important for women, in order to gain financial independence, they need to purchase something in their 20s. If they choose to have children in their 30s, they just rent it out and it just sits there and it stays there as their asset, their, their own independent asset. So no, no matter what happens in the future, they have some financial security. And I think if you wait too long, by the time you're in your mid-30s, you're thinking about having children, you must have a property by then that pays itself. It's too late in your mid-30s when you're raising children to think about buying something. It needs to be done the earlier the better in your early... And even if that just means buying a property that you don't like to live in, it's just in an area that's all you can afford, but the important thing is to get into the market even if it's a one-bedroom flat, you're not even in the game if you haven't purchased, no matter how small it is. Yep, I totally agree with you on that one. Um, changing a bit, Patricia, food allergies. I know you set up the Australian Food Allergy Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought that up? Where did that come so from? So my third daughter was born, and when she was two, she was diagnosed with a very severe allergy to tree nuts. So peanuts are grown on a bush and tree nuts are grown on trees. She can eat peanuts. She eats them every day. But if you gave her a walnut, it would kill her. <clears throat> we believe we were wow. given this child for a reason and that we were lucky enough to have a profile to be able to do something about it. So we set up the Australian Food Allergy Foundation because at the time nothing was being done. There was no education in schools. State government wasn't doing anything. Uh, there was no research being conducted and it, you had to wait 18 months to see a specialist. And we felt that that was unacceptable in this day and age in Australia. We are not a third world country and we, were, we felt we were in a position. John had a profile. We had a bit of money that we could throw into it. And we felt um, that it was our, this is our opportunity to make change. Since then, we've raised over $2 million, which has gone all into research. 
there is now, Victoria is still the safest state in Australia to raise a child who's anaphylactic. Um, there's millions and millions of dollars in research going on at the moment, especially at the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch. The schools, as you know, are very well educated on food allergies and asthma, far more than they were 18 years ago. And then about two, three years ago, I realised that the model for philanthropy no longer worked. So I couldn't stand with my hand on my heart and honestly say that every cent we raise today is going to research because the costs of running a foundation became too high. In the meantime, I was sitting on the special events committee at the Epworth Hospital and I approached the director of the Epworth Foundation and made a proposal. And the proposal was, I have a private donor. If I give you that money, would you match it dollar for dollar and we'll set up a partnership? And he agreed immediately. As a result, I shut down the foundation. The Epworth Hospital and the Australian Food Allergy Foundation set up the Centre for Paediatric Allergies, which is now at the Epworth Hospital in Richmond. And the money funds uh, PhD students so we get more and more specialists that can treat children who are anaphylactic. They do clinical trials there. You can have tests done there. Um, and that was the best decision I ever made because now Etworth fund the actual running of the foundation. I have no more costs because I've shut it down. Epworth get an instant presence in the food allergy arena, which they didn't have previously. So it really was a win-win for both parties. Fantastic. And Patricia, I know you also do some public speaking on men's health for the Epworth Hospital. Yes, I did quite a bit of that when my husband passed away because he was 42 and like most men at 42, he thought he was invincible. <clears throat> he was at the peak of his career. What 42-year-old man thinks he's going to die tomorrow? So they don't take care of themselves and they need to because they have responsibility. They have a wife, they have children, and they need to take it very seriously, much more seriously than most men are taking today. They would spend more time servicing their car than they would themselves and going to a doctor. And all I'm suggesting is maybe a blood test once a year. Women do that all the time and we don't think any, we don't even talk about it. Men, it's a yeah. big drama. It's, it's don't fix it unless it's broken. Yet 99% of all illnesses can be cured if they're found early enough. By the time a man realises he's sick, he's so far down the track, the doctors are limited in how they can help him. So I think uh, I did a lot of public speaking to change the culture, the way men think. And I did it for the sake of my son. So I wanted him to grow up in a world where he would have a blood test once a year or have a checkup once a year and not even talk about it like women do. To make So he feels it's just part of life and our culture without making it such a big thing, which I think for a lot of men today it still is. Uh, I do yeah, less and less public speaking now, but I, I still think there's a lot more work to be done in that arena. Sure thing. Agreed. Um, Patricia, in terms of other women, what advice would you give them if they had a passionate cause that they want to make a difference in? Do you mean um, like setting up a foundation for something they believe strongly yep. in to make change? 
So uh, what I did is I recruited my closest friends that were prepared to support me and believed in the cause like I did. And I set up a special events committee and we met at my home every two weeks. One of the ladies has a severely anaphylactic son, so she had a vested interest and in seeing research progress over the years. I would suggest you, you, you get like-minded people together and you discuss what avenues you can take to make change. And it could be as simple as we do a walk for children with allergies, you know, along the beach here in Brighton, and we raise so much money just for that, and you raise awareness. It doesn't have to be running an event at Crown Palladium. It can be something as small as that, and that's where you start. And then your strategy should be strategically to raise awareness of whatever that issue is. And then slowly you run events where you can raise a bit of money. You do research. Then you have to decide where that money is going to go. And so you look for the research that you think best applies to the cause that is close to your heart. And you establish relationships with those research organisations and you'll find that they will want the money as well. So they will assist you in your fundraising efforts. And you can, that, it's as simple as that. That's how you start. Yep, I totally agree with that. And, you know, there are plenty of like-minded people that do have passion for causes. Yeah. So it's, you know. About three years ago, three and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which has now been resolved. However, four of my closest friends have also had breast cancer. They're my age. And they approached me to sit on a committee. And last year we ran an event for 900 women at Corfield Racecourse. Mm -hmm. um, it ended up being delayed because of COVID. And we've only been together as a committee for not even two years. And I was astounded by the response we received when we decided we were going to run this event. Um, so that's not one I initiated. That's one where some exactly what happened is what I suggested. They approached me and asked me to sit on it. Of course, I was passionate about it because I'd been personally affected by it. So sure. it, it works at all levels. Yeah, that's, I just wanted to make that point. Yep. No, I agree. What piece of advice would you give to a female who's starting out in business? Um, I think you need to get into the industry. If you're talking about property, if you're talking about business, you, you look for something that you're passionate about. Don't think about the money. The money will come if you love what you're doing. It always does. It may not come straight away. It might take five years, but it will come if you love what you're doing. In terms of property, I cannot stress strongly enough how important it is to just get in, just so you're in the game. <clears throat> I think owning property is the key to financial independence for women. I think, like I said earlier, women need to purchase in their early 20s, rent it out while they're having a family. The other problem I think some women have is they usually have a lower risk profile, which is unusual, despite the fact that they probably run the household budget and do it very well. Yet when it comes to business, they get scared. And yet, in principle, running a household is exactly the same as running a business or managing a property. You have money coming in, money going out. You cannot live beyond your means. 
it's, it's the principles are exactly the same. And I think women need to change that profile from low risk. They're definitely lower risk than men. I think they should start by setting a budget, do some research on where they can afford to buy. Doesn't mean they have to live there, where they can afford to buy. And then recruit an expert, but just get help from the whatever it is you can afford. It may not be, you know, a top lawyer, but it could be a surveyor or and whatever their advice is, take it. Don't then not listen to it. Hire the best you can afford, whatever that is, and then listen to that advice and go ahead and purchase. Don't be scared of the debt. Debt's very important. You can't make money without having debt. Don't expect to save the whole amount for the property. That's not possible. Nobody did that. I had 10% deposit when I bought my first little house in Thornbury and I borrowed 90%, you know, did some renovations, sold it, made 30 grand, used the 30 grand to buy $180,000 apartment house. It was a house in Surrey Hills. So that took three years. By then I had a, a there was equity in that house, much more than what I started with. Uh, so I think that sums up my views really. <clears throat> and then you, you're in a position to progress, <clears throat> excuse me, because you're in the market and you're, you, or you're playing the game now. If you keep thinking about buying something and don't actually do it, you're not even in the game. And I think that's the strategy I used. It worked. And maybe that means setting a budget, having a separate bank account where you have automatic deductions go in every week or every month and you don't even see that money and that's your house money. And that's what I did. Well, very, very wise words, Patricia. Um, thank you for giving us such insightful and hearing all about what you've achieved, which is phenomenal. And we look forward to seeing you in real life soon. You're very Thanks, welcome, Patricia. Mara. Thank you for having me. Thank you.